Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. In late 2019, early 2020, Australia received international attention due to the devastating bushfire conditions and events that unfolded. This traumatic event was then compounded with the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in Australia on the 25th of January 2020. Since then, Australia's mental health sector has adapted to the conditions, whilst displaying the best qualities of humanity, selflessness, compassion, stamina and courage. We transitioned and explored opportunities overnight, ensuring that help was still available. However, the compounded impacts of COVID-19 and the 2019-2020 bushfire, bushfires on infants, children and youth cohorts was inevitable. This week's podcast guest, Rebecca Harris, coordinates student well-being at Carlton Primary School in inner city Melbourne. She directs the school's trauma-informed practice with a focus on promoting the well-being of students as well as families and staff. She has a postgraduate qualification in developmental trauma, has produced a practice manual detailing the early days of work at Carlton Primary and is currently writing a book entitled Safe to Learn, Embedding Whole School Wellbeing Practices to Create Trauma-Responsive Education. Stay tuned as I speak to Rebecca about the lessons learnt from 2020, including the impacts on children, the education system and carers alike, as well as the opportunities available moving forward for the child and adolescent mental health sector. Hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in for another episode. Today, I have the privilege of talking with Miss Rebecca Harris. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today, professionally. Well, professionally, I've spent the last 15 or so years working at Carlton Primary School, which is an inner city Melbourne primary school located just adjacent to a public housing estate that has a number of public housing towers. And the demographic of our school is mostly families from surrounds as well, and lots of families with migrant and refugee backgrounds. And I started there in a community development role. So working with families, really looking at how we could utilise the school for the community, given that Carlton is a suburb that has a premium on community space. So that was how I started part-time a long time ago. Well, nothing really to do with the school itself other than using the facility. Well, yeah. I mean, I worked with the with the staff and I guess that's what happened. It sort of moved more into working more closely with the student wellbeing staff because I had good relationships with parents. And so when we had to talk to parents about tricky things, often we would do it together. So the student wellbeing coordinator would be there because she knew the kids really well and I'd be there because I knew the parents well. And so my interest in 
that sort of area and for all of us at school I think our interest in the impact on the impact of trauma on our students and their learning started to grow together and so I ended up going back and studying developmental trauma and convening. How many years was that? That was just an additional postgraduate year so back studying counselling and psychotherapy now because once you get the postgrad bug (laughs) keep going keep going yeah yeah so conveniently the student well-being coordinator got pregnant went off and had a baby so uh, I sidestepped into that role about five years ago and and that has been a tremendous time of learning learning lots yeah I bet tell us about the sorts of things that when you were first into the role because it was a well-being coordinator role to start with Yeah, and so it's still, I mean, that is the role, but but really a big part of what my interest is and what I've done there at school is being able to lead our trauma-informed practice work. So we've been doing that for a number of years and it just, you know, there's such a natural coming together of trauma-informed work and education because we have this fabulous access to children, what, 41 weeks a year, five days a week, and... Um, it means that we can do some really great work in terms of building relationships and supporting children to feel safe and to be really attuned to their needs. So it's very embedded throughout the whole school student wellbeing. It's not a one-person job. Is that common at schools in Victoria to have such a strong link there? No, absolutely not. I think... I've never heh of it before. Yeah, well, we're a small school and... and to have a full-time wellbeing person is almost unheh of. I came across someone once who was full-time wellbeing and I said that's amazing you hardly ever hear that how many kids are at your school and she said like oh a thousand okay right so yeah so it is unusual there's been a rollout over the last few years of Berry Street the Berry Street model which which is a trauma-informed model that schools can take up so that's really been something relatively new so it is starting to happen. So where did the link come up that trauma was linked to what you were doing in that role like how did how did that link get made in the first place I think it was sort of just we we really started the principal and a few of us just who were interested started doing some reading and exploring learning and uh, I'm, I can't think how long ago it was but that um, that link between neuroscience learning and trauma started to be made so it just seemed to me to go yeah, really naturally yeah. and I think because of my experience working with families it made a lot of sense too seeing the kinds of stress that families live with when they've had a challenging journey to get to the safety of Australia and then living in circumstances that aren't necessarily all that safe when you've got thousands and thousands of people living closely together and dealing with exposure to all kinds of things as well as living with poverty and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And that was the big uh, the question I was going to ask about the low socioeconomic clientele that come to the school. Obviously, do you think this is something that is relevant to any school or do you think that it's specifically highly more effective in low socioeconomic areas? I think it's relevant everywhere. Yeah. And I know that you think about things like living with racism and poverty that's obviously traumatic but family violence doesn't discriminate yeah. you know that's something that's yeah. all around 
loss of a of a loved Grief. family member. There are lots of things that that people live with, and yeah. certainly the sort of structural inequities that exist in our society can cross barriers when it comes to socioeconomic background too. Certainly for things like racism, like living with or living with a disability or being part of any minority really can be, bring all those experiences. And so some of the examples of the trauma that you're seeing through kids and families at your school would include like DV, addiction, drugs. Interestingly, not so much of that at at our school and but we do know that it does exist across across the board. So sometimes we do encounter situations like that. I think the basic tenets of trauma-informed practice are building relationships and creating a safe environment. So really, that is just so great for lots of children. And, you know, we think about the rates of anxiety that exist too for young people. And they're not necessarily, it's not necessarily something that you can easily pinpoint where that anxiety has come from. So, you know, even for, for children like yeah. that, but certainly there is the experience for lots of families of having lived in unsafe situations and then coming to a place of safety doesn't make all those experiences go away. And the experience of parental trauma is something that is shared with children. Whether you like it or not, it's a really difficult thing to separate your own experience as a parent living with anxiety or high stress or anything like that from your child's experience. So we would certainly see some examples, I guess, of transgenerational trauma. Yeah. What are some of the key challenges with the role that you're in there? I think the key challenge for me is working in systems that aren't necessarily with the child at the centre, which seems ridiculous when you're talking about education or housing or child protection. Of course, all those systems should have children at the centre, but the reality is that they don't. And it's incredibly difficult thinking about the sorts of some of the challenging behaviours that we deal with that are not funded. We're not talking about kids with disabilities necessarily, but we're talking about children who, for a range of reasons, find it incredibly difficult to engage with an edu- a one-size-fits-all education system. Right. So, in other words, the problem needs to have the child at the heart of it all, obviously, which makes sense. Yeah. But you're saying the system doesn't do that. Absolutely not. That's right. And I think we had all that amazing, the Gonski report all those years ago saying we should fund schools based on need, and that was radical. And we're still, we're still trying to make that happen. We should yeah. be funding students based on their need too. And each individual student has individual needs and we're very good at differentiating in schools for children's learning when it comes to numeracy or literacy and understanding that not all kids are at the same level but it's much different when it comes to behavior there's an expectation that all children will behave the same that they know how to behave that they've learned how to behave so I think um, certainly I know challenging behaviors are uh, issues in all schools yeah and it's not something that certainly in my experience is easily dealt with in schools. And how do you do that? I mean, you've got behavioural, you're right, behavioural challenges because everyone's supposed to conform to a certain set of behaviours. And the teacher's obviously trying to do their best. You need some guidelines and some rules there so that everyone behaves in a certain way that's acceptable. What do you think the answer is to that? 
I think it has to be we differentiate for behaviour the same way we do for other kinds of learning. And I think that this is why I feel so strongly about trauma-informed practice in schools because part of what, when you learn about trauma, you learn about the differences in children's brains and their bodies and their emotions. And it's not even necessarily related to trauma, but it is relevant to all children. I think we still, in a lot of schools, have this kind of punitive approach to behaviour as though by punishing children, that's going to teach them. And behaviour is learned. We assume children will come to school knowing how to do all the things we're asking them to do, which in my opinion, often quite unreasonable as someone who struggles to sit still for an hour myself. And I think we really need to be much more responsive to individual children's needs. And it can be as simple as giving kids the option to go for a little walk and just do a blocky. We say at Carlton Primary for kids, going to the toilet doesn't necessarily mean going to the toilet. Sometimes it's walking there, turning around and walking straight back. And if that's what you need, 90 second walk, great if that's what gets you back into the learning zone when you get back in that's incredible sometimes it takes a bit more than that you're right though i mean each kid is so unique and they're ready to learn at different parts of their life but surely we i mean we don't have the resources to go down to one teacher per person so i guess we've got to find a way to have some commonality amongst them don't we that's right and i think that's where it's great when you've got a school culture that says a child can approach an adult and no matter which adult they approach in the school, they'll get a sympathetic response. So that's all, I mean, I say that's all, that's pretty big. That's all you need. So I have a space at school that children can come to with obviously with teacher permission, we always need to know where they are and they can just sit for a little minute, do a little drawing or have a chat about whatever's buzzing around in their head or whatever's going on. And with the aim that they can re-enter the classroom ready for learning assuming they've exited Mm. because they weren't quite ready for learning for whatever reason. But if they can't find me, the students might go and pop in to the principal's office where there's a little child-sized table with Lego. So they might sit and play Lego for five minutes, gather themselves and head back. Or, you know, we're doing triage all the time, trying to work out if this is a big problem or a little problem, as we say at school all the time. But it's just really about being responsive. I think we're lucky enough to have team teaching so there are there's always two adults or if not right next to each other you know fairly close so teachers can rely on each other to maybe grab a two-minute chat with a child or they might have spaces in their classroom like a tent with some cushions inside it where a child might be able to go and sit quietly if it's feeling a bit overwhelming but still be able to hear the teacher we utilize noise counseling headphones and and lots of other sort of resources like that How do you embed that sort of emotional intelligence or the awareness for kids at a young age to be in tune with their emotions and take yourself, if you are feeling frustrated or you're over it or you to be able to just withdraw yourself, go take a walk, go do something different and then come back? Because, I mean, you know it works when kids do that. But how do you help teach that awareness for them to have that at such a young age? I think it really has to be taught in the classroom and taught I do mean explicit classes but I also just mean modeled you know we have to do it as the grown-ups and we have to express our emotions in words so that kids can see it happening 
even if that might mean saying, I'm feeling really frustrated right now, giving them a model to work with. We utilise the Respectful Relationships curriculum that's been around, was developed by the Victorian Department of Education and Melbourne Uni was a partner, I think. And it's actually a primary prevention program to prevent violence against women and children. It's, but the curriculum is really all just teaching emotions. Yeah, right. um, as, as one student said to me when I came in, oh, is it Tuesday? Have we got feelings? I was like, yeah, yeah, we've got feelings. <laughs> feelings class. Wow. You know, that's his response to what happens when I come into the classroom to talk about oh, to we can have deliver the curriculum. So, yeah, it's feelings. So that's an incredible resource and it's all available online. I would recommend that to anyone. And we, we pair that with school-wide positive behaviour support program and zones of regulation. And there are lots of really accessible, simple programs aimed at children that really it's just a matter of all the staff getting their head around it. And I mean, lots of the respectful relationship curriculum are just really short lessons then, or they're, they're brain break type activities that um, someone's done all the research and provided all these amazing um, lessons. So the lesson plans are there and that sort of thing. So, but once as a school, all the, all the grown-ups have got the language, that really helps too because we're giving consistent language all the time and the children just pick it up. Yeah. But look, they're not always easy to convince and I was trying very hard a couple of weeks ago to explain to a child that it wasn't that everyone else got more annoying when he was angry, that it had something to do with his anger, but no, he wasn't having a bar of it. So you don't always get through <laughs> quite the way that you'd like and... Time is probably yeah, the other yeah. answer. <laughs> Tell me the, the buy-in for this. Like where does it need to start? And is it community-driven? Is it something that teachers can just drum up the support and, or is it you know, really top-down? I think with anything in a school, it's got to come from leadership. I think teachers can make differences in their own classrooms and, and I would want any teacher to feel empowered to make a difference in their classroom because as we know, it only takes one trusted adult in a child's life to really set them on a path where there are positive outcomes. But I think when you've got leadership buy-in, that's what really makes things happen. But also it's got to be teachers as well. And working at the kind of school that we do, no one's there for an easy ride. It's, yeah. it's challenging and, and you have to bring your whole self in. So we've never had a problem with teacher buy-in, but I know that it is an issue for teachers contact me from all over the place and certainly for, I guess, what you might call old old school teachers who aren't keen on changing that really standard punitive approach to behaviour. People have done something a certain way for a long time. Yeah, it's hard to get them to change, which is interesting because we want the kids to, I mean, they're growing up with so much change at the moment as well. Yeah. Yeah, I find it really intriguing. And so you've gotten into this you're full on in this. You started writing a book as well. Yeah. Safe to Learn. Tell us a little bit about that and how that's going. That was one of the positive that came out of the COVID lockdown times for me was getting approached by a publisher, which is a bit of a dream scenario. Yeah. And Hawker Brownlow, they're an education publisher and the person who contacted me said, you know, there's so much going on in the world right now. I just really wanted to find a way that we could bring a book out that did some really positive work in schools and I was lucky enough that she found me. So yeah, look, it, it's a pretty 
daunting prospect, but also pretty great because it's lots of research and yeah. and it was interesting to note that there are some really great books on the topic, but there aren't very many. And there are different educational contexts, even across Australia, but certainly um, around the world. So I'm pretty excited to be. Yeah, that's an, what that. an amazing opportunity. And yeah. is, it, is it for teachers only? Is it for parents? Is it for everybody? Who's... Well, aimed at teachers okay. or educators, so anyone in schools, or, but really anyone working with children, Community I think. Community organisations, and, yeah, yeah, and sports. Yeah, absolutely, social workers. I think the thing that happens too is once you start learning a bit more about how the brain responds to threat, we understand more about ourselves and about the adults who we encounter as well because the reality is for children and the smaller they are the bigger a threat might feel and that can be living with an angry parent or it can be living with a parent who is emotionally detached there are lots of things that can set an infant or a small child basically into that fight flight freeze response that we know about and when that happens a lot it really alters children's behavior and once you start recognizing it (laughs) it's helpful in life just generally I think to know about so yeah aimed at educators but hopefully useful for other people too. I think it's a great idea and what a great tool to be able to leverage off to reach more people because I think like I said I've never heard of this happening at the school level but I think it's such a, a fantastic idea Tell me about the impact that this has on the families. Tell me about how you've seen the behavioural change in kids. What's the upside to what you're doing? I guess we don't always have wins. I think it's important to say it's complicated stuff. But the things that really make it important, I think, for, for those of us in the job are when we really connect with children and certainly also with their parents. But the primary relationship is with kids because we're with them every day. And about five years ago when I wrote like a toolkit that sort of started as like a practice manual for us in the theme of if, um, you know, the three of us who'd been doing a lot of the work left tomorrow, how would people know what we were doing? So I wanted to record all of that. And um, I entitled that one... I feel happy when I get to be with you because it was something that a child said to me one day Uh. and was a child who I'd spent over the course of a year after this child's father had died. I basically got a visit at least once a day in my room where we just talked about stuff. It wasn't necessarily about that death or it was just stuff and we just hung out and that was something that that child said to me one day and they got through it. And we were able, you know, graduated and headed off to high school and just watching and knowing that that child had somewhere that they could come and someone with the time that was certainly a student whose teacher really cared about them as well and other people in the school. But I was the one lucky enough to have the time to be able to have that chat every day. And I think there are lots of lots of stories like that where you might be really needed for a short period of time but what's happened in that time is it's helped a child get through a really tricky stage when maybe for that child mum isn't the best person to go to because she's dealing with her own grief and lots of other stuff so would that also be true for people just normal like 
people that are unaffected by trauma. I mean, just to have that skill for, to, for somebody to sit and just play with them and listen to what they want to say. I mean, that, that's still a great tool for people that have no trauma background as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think life can be pretty traumatic. Just mm. growing up in it yeah. is difficult. Certainly losing a parent is traumatic for anyone, no matter what their background is. But yeah. I think that's the thing that's that's really significant and most important to me too is we can all benefit from having someone who'll just listen to us and have a little chat and give us a boost or may just give us that feeling of being understood, known and cared about. And I, I think that schools are a place that often will do that really well, but it's hard. There are a lot of demands on teachers and they no. don't necessarily have that gift of time. No. No, and parents as well sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it's that the impact of what we might call chronic stress of a parent are essentially traumatic to a child. So a parent living with the kind of daily stress that lots of adults in Australia live with because they don't have enough money or because they live with violence or addiction or whatever it is, just that that sort of stress really impacts children. And I think when their parents are living with high levels of stress, for a lot of children, makes their parent a bit more, well, less available emotionally because they're dealing with their own stuff. And if a school can provide someone who can offer that soft place to land, then that's pretty amazing. We're starting to hear more and more about well-being, well-being of people, especially in corporations now are starting to look at doing a much better job at caring about just not the person while they're at work but about the whole being the whole well-being of them and the health and well-being of them and their employees tell us about what makes this program one of the things they mention here is you know whole of school well-being tell us what that means and i mean on the surface it makes sense but tell us about what that actually means well i think that it is that idea that I mentioned before that a student can approach any adult and get a reliable response. So it makes the whole school a therapeutic environment and ideally also for the people who work there. And staff wellbeing is a, is a whole other thing and definitely hugely challenging as well. But we're pretty lucky at Carlton that we all the people who work there, we all really like each other a lot and we support each other in tricky moments in the moment as well as after the moment or just generally. And I think um, that certainly has a huge impact on my well-being, knowing that I can turn to mm. any of the other adults around. So I think we're modelling it to children by doing it ourselves too. Then, of course, there's that other element of self-care, which people talk about a lot. And it's when you need it the most, the last thing you want to be told is you should go for a nice walk after work. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. It's a tricky one. That can be a really difficult one. And I think in a lot of work environments, that's really, really hard too. But I think the idea of, of embedding well-being across a whole school is that it sees each of us as a holistic human being. Like we're not, but we have a few little catchphrases at school and one of them is assume complexity like life is complex and if a child is showing you some behavior that is not what you want to see assume complexity like kids aren't rocking up to school thinking oh I'm really gonna 
give these teachers yeah annoy them I today play up today yeah something that, else is going on that's right and people say to me sometimes well if you just let kids come and talk to you at any time they're just going to all want to say that they need to come and talk to you and then they're not going to want to go back to class and it's just actually not how it works as a general rule kids want to be in class they want to be with their peers and they want to be doing well and getting positive feedback what's the role of the family in all this so if my child's going to Carlton Primary School and and obviously is seeing you and doing some sessions with you as they want to do, is there an element of inclusion with the parents? Is there an element of ownership or communication that happens to bridge that gap? That's a great question and it is really important, I think, to engage families. It's a lot harder to build trust with an adult than it is with a child and it can take longer. I think it's really powerful for a parent to hear that someone else, another adult who they're not necessarily super connected to, cares about and knows their child and that's generally my point of contact with parents is I like to be able to contact parents ideally in face-to-face before or after school when people are just hanging around because no one likes getting a call from school unfortunately we're trying to do more positive phone calls home but to be able to say I saw your child in class today I saw them doing this give some indication of how I know their child and I care about their child and their child's learning as well and building relationships like that means that when you do call because there's been something happened that you want to chat to them about ideally they know that you're on their side or that you're working together and we we talk about that with families too we've we've got to all work together again with the child at the center and look sometimes that's more successful than other times but i think again that was another little kind of gift from COVID and lockdown was we we got to know families better because we're all videoing ourselves in our lounge rooms and they had their kids in their lounge room you know we were in each other's homes basically and so as happens with schools a lot I think you get to know some families really well but COVID allowed us I guess to connect better with some of the families we we don't always connect with. I think the other thing that's really helpful at our school is we have staff at school who are multilingual and I think just that being able to call someone over and in in an instant have someone interpreting rather than someone on the phone or a stranger helps a lot too. And I know that that's a luxury that not all schools yeah. have, although not all schools have language barriers, I guess, too. But but I think that certainly helps us build connections with Rapport. families too. Yeah. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. What, is, what has been some other key learnings in the, the last four or five years that you've found in this role? What have been some of the, has there been anything that surprised you that's stood out to you or you think, wow, I didn't know how great that was or how, how I thought that was this way, but it's that way and this is amazing. Is, is there any other key learnings that you've, that you've found? I think for anyone working in a role that's directly dealing with children and trying to support their well-being and their mental health, It's really hard and absolutely I include teachers in that as well because they're doing it every day whether they want to or not, that you get really affected by children, by families and that there is, there's something about bringing your whole self to your job 
and you have to bring your heart along with you and it's a real gift because it allows you to connect really strongly but it can be really tough as well and being really fabulous at boundaries is still something I'm working on it we try to leave work at work but I think anyone working in these sort of areas I think that that's really hard which is why even when you don't want to be told to actually going for a walk is a really good thing yeah well, let's talk about self-care then what does it mean to you or to school from a staffing point of view like and how important do you take that I think it's incredibly important and we talk about it a bit but the reality is self-care rests with the individual and it's hard because you can catch someone in a moment and say just the right thing which might be I'll I'm here you get out of here for five minutes go and make a cup of tea like that can be the most incredible gift for a teacher or, or even go to the toilet <laughs> also can be yeah. a gift for a teacher but it's a real challenge the self-care and I think it's really important that we just talk about how we are a lot because sometimes I think for for people working in these high pressure jobs with a lot of people and particularly children maybe not <laughs> that to have someone outside of you say hey are you okay or you look exhausted even whatever yeah, it is checking in. checking in allows people to check in with themselves a little bit too and it might be that actually you need to take a mental health day yeah. and certainly we are lucky enough to have leadership who absolutely understands that and knows that taking a mental health day tomorrow might save a mental health week in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I don't think that that's necessarily, and we're not certainly not there yet generally in Australia with understanding that our mental health is, is as important as our uh, physical health. But I think when you're in a role that is of service to other people, you have to be in service to yourself as well. But yeah. And it's so different for different people too, isn't it, what, of what they want to do for exactly. self-care because yeah. not everyone wants to meditate, not everyone wants to go for a walk, but everyone's got their own definition of what that looks like. So yeah. it's almost like having the ownership to understand that and what works for you, but then be willing to use that tool in the event that's required. Yep, that's right. And you might need to be a bit creative about it, but it is so true. And that, and because of that, you can't do it for anyone else. That's why I guess I'm saying it rests with the individual. You can't say what you need, you need, because we yeah. don't really know. No. And there are some key things that I guess maybe work for lots of people, but, but yeah, we're all individuals and we have different thresholds too. And certainly if we have a challenging incident at school, for example, we were just talking about it a couple of weeks ago. You need to know what works for you and for some people it might be just jumping straight back into work and saying I just need to keep going with this and for other people it might actually be I need to leave this building and sit in the sun for 10 minutes. Like different Time people out. need yeah. different things. Yeah. yeah, no, that's certainly interesting. Do you feel, if you're looking at it from your experience so far, how do you feel like we're progressing as a nation towards providing that safe area for kids and do you think that we are on the way or do you feel like we need a massive kick up the bum to say hang on this is all being done ask about yeah i don't think we're remotely there and look at the 
incarceration of 10 year olds and you know we're not there and in yeah. just generally at the idea of closing the gap for first nations children in australia that's the you just need to look there to know that it, yeah. that we're not there and we're not okay and that the idea of generational trauma and the trauma of structural inequity the trauma of colonization like that is that's we should be looking there for some huge changes as a yeah. starting point because children in Australia aren't all treated equally yeah and I think that's yeah that's certainly something that that we see with children from a migrant refugee background and yeah, children living in rural and remote areas. Like we don't, we don't have equity in no. Australia and I think we all deserve it, but children especially. You're right with what you said earlier. It's, life is complex and especially with those migrant populations, the communities coming over and experiencing a much better quality of life probably from where they were, but still, like you said, they have that trauma that carries with them and not only... It doesn't carry with them, but but it comes through their kids as well, communicated or, or not. But still, it still gets passed on. If you could may wave your magic wand, how would you ideally like to see the school community? What what would it in if, as far as a nurturing? How would you if resources weren't a problem? What would be the best scenario that you could see? I think ideally schools would be have more adults in them. <laughs> yeah better ratios, be more welcoming, have this idea that education doesn't look the same for everyone. It just... Would you even have grades? Well, some schools are starting to move beyond grades in high school and people are loving it and the results are interesting coming through. But the, the idea of... And in, in countries that we look to for educational e excellence too, there's a lot more project work and when children are driving the learning, like they, they want to learn. That's in fact pretty much all they do is just yeah. learn stuff all the time. So if they're driving the learning, that would be wonderful too. Our curriculum's pretty tight. When you start looking at you've got to do X number of hours of PE, X number of hours of yeah. literacy and of numeracy, and you've got to teach a, a, low, a language other than English, and you've got to teach the hours that you have to put in are more than what we've got in the week. Mm. And then everything you read seems to say they should be teaching that at school is <laughs> yeah. the answer to everything. So I, I feel like if we, yeah, if, if, yeah, things were a bit more creative in, in schools, that would be pretty wonderful. When I said before grades, would you, would you get rid of grades? I was, I guess I didn't think about it until I just thought of it, but I was meaning like the eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, but I guess the grades are scoring as well. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's I, I, right. I don't know which one you thought I meant, but I was, I was originally meaning the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 sort of thing. Like, would you just break down those barriers and go, like what you said, more project focused to dictate what the speed of their learning? I think um, one of the things that we do at school a lot is just a, a huge focus on growth because that's what we want, isn't it? You want children to be growing and as a teacher, you want them to be learning what you're teaching them and how do you measure that it's the growth of their learning so it shouldn't matter where children start it should matter yeah. how much they grow and i think that's a much better measurement than saying you should be reading level d books by now or yeah. or whatever because brains are different and i think hearing the term neurodiversity more and more and more is 
fabulous because why would we assume that we all have got brains that are the same or that learn the same? It just doesn't make any sense. So I think that focus on growth would be fabulous. That mm. I mean, even just thinking about the NAPLAN test that all threes, fives, sevens and nines do and looking at the questions on that, often those questions assume a certain amount of knowledge that or, or experience even yeah. that children don't all fundamentally have. I remember being in a classroom one day when um, there was a maths example being worked through and it was something about sheep in a paddock and the kids were all just like, what? What's a paddock? <laughs> Why would they know what a paddock is? They, they live in a city. Yeah, in yeah. the context, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it might not be, if it's not a word they know in a home language, then there's no instant translation either in their amazing multilingual brains. So. Yeah, that's a good point. As you look forward, what are some of the challenges you think we're going to continue to have as it relates to kids supporting them around trauma and being able to support their education and learning? I think really in our context here in Australia, inequity is a huge driver of continuing trauma. And we can just look at the recent experience over 2020 of giving people job seeker and job keeper, you know, an actual amount of money they could live off and what an amazing impact that had on individuals and on families. Mm. And that would just be a really clear example. I mean, I think we have in our nation a punitive approach to poverty. It's it, We don't try to bring equity in yeah. across all levels. I mean, obviously, as women, we're still trying to get... Yeah. <laughs> equality so and and like like i said before when you look at the huge gaps between the experiences of first nations children in australia compared with white children compared with refugee migrant children like there are huge inequities and i think i think that's a huge barrier and it's also we know a driver for family violence and all kinds of things so if we could um if we could somehow become an equitable society, that'd be amazing. That'd be great. And what about COVID? How did that impact the kids that you had to look after uh, or that were at your school? Yeah, it was pretty full on because in those public housing towers, there are lots of people and we're all getting along trying to do the right thing. There's no guarantee that your neighbour is also trying to do the right thing necessarily. There were, I guess, the government, as the government has established in Victoria, more people living in the flats than they had anticipated because families grow and then they need a bigger place, but there isn't a bigger place because there's not enough public housing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But we had a really active group of agencies in Carlton who have been working together for uh, decades and really engaged and active and it took... I reckon, I think it was four months basically of asking housing to put hand sanitizer in the towers, four months before they put it in. And then when it was all used the first time, they were reluctant to refill it. People kept using it. (laughs) So (laughs) I think I felt really privileged to be able to keep coming to work and to sort of shift gears a little bit into not just student wellbeing, family wellbeing, but actual community wellbeing too and working with other community agencies like the local neighbourhood house and the council and other 
local agencies and charities to really try to make sure the community was okay. There were huge distributions of food, our little cafe that we all go to to get our coffees and lunch, um, donated food boxes to our families so we could deliver them to people who were having a particularly hard time and lots of just amazing stories like that came out. So it was a really intense time. There were certainly a lot of children who didn't leave their flats for months and that had a huge impact in a lot of ways, but it was ways that parents could feel that their children were safe. And coming back this first term was pretty full on. And from what I'm hearing anecdotally, that was across the board in uh, in Melbourne schools, that children's behaviour was more challenging than before. So, wow. yeah, I guess it affected children and families in ways that it'll probably take us a long time and a lot of research to work out exactly to unpick it all. Yeah, only just beginning to see it, aren't we, really? Mm. And it's still around. Uh, Well, that's right. It's still impacting. Yeah. The the anxiety around it all is still very real. Yeah. What As we round for the straight home, Rebecca, tell us what else is there that I haven't asked you that we should touch on before we close out the conversation. Is there anything else that you wanted to say? I just... I guess really that one of the messages that maybe came out of what we all went through last year in Melbourne is that we really need to work together more and that having education or health or housing as silos that don't intersect doesn't make any sense because people's lives aren't like that. They intersect in a lot of ways and I think the idea of trauma-informed practice in education is an acknowledgement that any individual is complex and there are many, many, many elements. And I think it would be wonderful if we could see more of that just in society generally and in all levels of government as well, if we could communicate better and work work better, that that would absolutely benefit or well, all of us, but children and families, but all of us. I have no doubt that that's... That's a, a great solution. And, I mean, it's truly amazing the work that you've been doing and, and the school have been doing now for some time, a couple of years at least, and it makes sense. So I'm great that you're here at the conference spreading the word and, and join me on the podcast to discuss it because it's great to try and reach out to a few more people than otherwise uh, we would have done. But hearing about the great work that you're up to, how can people get in contact with you? They can track me down at Carlton Primary School. Carlton Primary School, okay, so they can just <laughs> I, look you up on the net. Well, I, I, well, I have a website that's traumainformedpractice.com.au or absolutely just through my my education email address, which is just rebecca.harris.education.vic.gov.au. And when's the book going to be released? Well, I've got a rough draft due in February, so still a bit of time next okay. year. Well, we'll keep our eyes and ears peeled for that one yes, because it'll be uh, good to touch base on that. Safe to learn. We'll keep in touch about that. But listen, I think it's been really great to talk to you and listen to all the things that you're up to down there. And it makes such a perfect opportunity to ingrain that trauma-informed practice within the well-being space and the student well-being space at the school level. I mean, I think it's a wonderful thing, great initiative, and it's obviously working uh, and improving the lives of those that go there and the families that attend that. 
especially for migrant families, you know, the minority, they tend to get forgotten about and the lack of resources available to those people. So I think it's a fantastic tool. So congratulations on the work you're doing and, and we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you. Thanks for letting me talk about it. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.